Welcome to the podcast is dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The ask a cycling coach podcast presented by trainer road. This is where you get answers to your coaching questions and myself coach Jonathan Lee and our head coach, Chad Timmerman. Hi everyone. And our CEO, Nate Pearson. Hello. All three of us will be doing our best to answer those questions. You can submit them to us at trainerroad.com slash podcast. And you can go on there, see different episodes that we've posted recently, listen to them there. Uh, you can submit questions in an easy to use form and get in touch with us. And we'll comb through as many questions as we get every week, pull out the ones that hopefully can benefit the most people or we feel are, are some interesting talking points. And then we'll answer them each week. You can find this podcast on SoundCloud. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you aggregate your podcasts and soon to be Spotify as well, which is exciting stuff for all of you that use Spotify. You'll be able to listen to it there. And you can give, leave us a rating on all of those platforms or a review. And we like five-star reviews. And if it's not five stars, let us know what we can do to be better. But you can just contact us first, and then we can change it. And then you can leave us a five-star review, because that's really good. <laughs> so uh, you can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, all over the place. Just look for Trainer Road. That's simple. And you can submit your questions on there as well. Um, on Twitter, we've been getting a bunch of questions coming in. Use the hashtag AskTrainerRoad. You can use that on Instagram as well. Or on Snapchat, you can just send us a DM, uh, just snap us a question, whether you type it out, whether you speak it out. And we usually answer those questions directly on Snapchat pretty quickly. Um, it's, it'll be myself, Chad, or Nate will answer that. Uh, or we'll lump them into the podcast if we feel it's a cool question that a lot of people could benefit from. And stay tuned to that Snapchat because we also reveal some cool stuff, uh, some behind yeah. the scenes stuff. I've been showing some uh, new software we've been working on inside of Snapchat for Trainer Road. So it's just the Snapchat's for Trainer Road, right? Just search for mm -hmm. that. Add that friend. That's simple. Uh, it's fun because it yes. just disappears. Who cares? <laughs> but all these old people yeah. are like, what's Snapchat? <laughs> it's it's awesome. I honestly wish that everybody, uh, all my family and everything else is on Snapchat. It'd be a very easy way to to catch up with what's going on in everyone's life. So, And it's really fun to follow us on there. If you do have co coaching questions, feel free to ask them. Even if they're crazy and off the wall, we'll do our best to answer them. Um, in fact, we got a question the other day uh, if it was okay to not wear bib straps and on the trainer, and the guy was showing what it looked like with bib straps and without bib, bib straps. It's a little interesting, but... <laughs> What do you think? Any question goes. <laughs> I think that it doesn't matter either way, but I always put my bib straps on because that holds my bibs in place a little better with the chamois. So yeah. if I don't have my bib straps on, there's a chance that it could move around a little more. What do you guys think? If you get in and out of the saddle, you can catch your bib straps on your saddle. I've done that many times. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. I wear them. And then uh, we have that quarry that's like the one piece that kind of has a little bit of it's like the jersey's a little bit separated, but it's not a full uh, speed suit. And on that yeah, one, two and one, I'll usually like roll it up and put it in because I don't like wearing it because it's a little bit hotter. Because I, I don't yeah. want to have it get caught on the saddle, like you said, Chad. Yeah, good call. And if you're riding with a normal trainer, one that isn't like a wheel off trainer, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but one with your wheel on, that could get messy too. That could be really embarrassing if you get your kit caught. <laughs> it's like the movies <laughs> where it just strips off your clothes instantly. <laughs> <laughs> Still be pedaling there. Hopefully the chamois stays put. So, um, Perfect. Well, let's get things kicked off here. Um, instead of a question, it was a helpful link that we got sent from Connor. Uh, a few episodes ago, we talked about the Tax Neo and all the different smart trainers and the ones that we recommended. Um, we really like how quiet the Neo is. It works pretty well. 
Um, overall, we still preferred the kicker we mentioned just because we have more time with it. We've noticed less issues, everything else. But really one of the main gripes we had is that you can't use it with a through axle bike. So whether that's a cross bike or a mountain bike or even a road bike with a through axle. But now um, if you go to Rose Bikes, like Rose like the flower, so rosebikes.co.uk, they actually have a through axle adapter and uh, for the Neo. And I believe it works with 135 by 10. So that's 10 mil diameter, 135 is the width of the back end, and also 12 by 142. So if you have boost spacing, you're still out of luck, but you're out of luck, I think, pretty much across the board with boost spacing for now. Um, but Unless you you're have, riding. Yes, yeah, exactly you're, right. And you're in a lot of luck. Yes, then it's awesome. Rigid wheels. Um, but so yeah, thanks so much, Connor, for that link. Uh, check out rosebikes.co.uk if you're looking for a through axle adapter for the Neo. And if you do have a bike with a through axle, your options at the high end of the trainer market just opened up a little more. So cool stuff. Uh, let's get into things with Ian's question. He says, I always get great power curve results when I'm out in the mountains climbing. Better than when I do an FTP test. I've heard that Joe Friel has said not to use a long climb as a base to set your FTP as you'll likely overstate what your FTP should be. My question is, why is that? Surely if you can put it out, you can put it out, irrespective if that's on a yes. climb, a trainer, a race, <laughs> or whatever. Uh, yeah, you go so, first, Chad, then I'll say what my opinion is. Okay, that sounds good. Uh, Ian, uh, basically different types of terrain require different types of output. So, you know, if you imagine um, barreling into a headwind where there's constant stress on the muscle and you're, you're really grinding it out versus the sort of muscle stress you get if you turn around and you have a tailwind and, and you're bombing along, spun out, and it's all about leg speed. So so different different types of stress elicit different uh, responses and probably different power outputs. And when it comes to a hill, that, that's more of a, a steadier stress. Uh, we can, I'll let the boys talk about the inertial load and, and uh, the, those dynamics, but basically you're, you're recruiting more muscle mass and probably spinning at a lower, lower cadence, um, both of which can lend to a greater anaerobic contribution. So it might not be a fair representation of your steady state power because you might be adding a little bit more uh, anaerobic capacity or anaerobic work to, to the whole equation. Let's say though, if you, you aren't at a lower cadence and you're at your normal cadence, you've done the 20 minute test, you've done that clearing effort. Uh, hills are a lot more motivating than like going into the wind and stuff. And, and mm -hmm. people, people have seen this a lot and I am of the opinion. And I think Andrew Coggin is of the same opinion that Joe feel is wrong. Joe Friel is wrong here. And if you can put it out, as long as it's not, um, if you can put it out, that's your, your FTP. The only case where it's not that case is if you're doing, uh, what he calls a NP, NP buster workout where uh, something like a crit that will have a whole bunch of really uh, short intervals and then you'll be off and short and off, that can get you a normalized power for an hour higher than your actual FTP. Other than that, if you can do it, that's you. You've done it. I don't. It doesn't really matter how you put it, um, put it out, if it's standing or sitting or whatever. If you can put out the power, that's what you can put out by definition. Yeah. And, I, and actually, I have to agree. Um, I'm just trying to explain where Joe's, where I think Joe's coming from. Um, I, I do agree with Nate, though. I think that 
um, especially when it comes to riding hills and riding a trainer, the stress is so similar. And if you're geared the same, or at least you're turning the same cadence, if you're on an electronic trainer, um, the stress is going to be so similar. So if you can do it going up a hill, there's really no reason you can't do it inside, say for the usual caveats, like, you know, if, if you're not properly cooled, if you're not properly motivated, things like that. But the fact is you have the work capacity. Why can't you exploit it indoors? Yeah. I'll argue Joe, Joe's point, And I mean, this might be his point. Let's say you did all, let's say there's no indoor training. You did all of your intervals on flat stuff outside and you did your FTP once on a hill and in the future you didn't have the same motivation and every, you failed at every workout. Maybe then he's like, maybe, you know, you should do all your intervals on those same long ones, but that's the only thing I could think of. I don't, I don't really know why he says this, uh, but maybe, maybe that's why maybe. Yeah. Good insights. I don't have anything to add there. It's interesting that perspective of the, the anaerobic contribution that you, you mentioned there, Chad. Um, That's like two though, over 20 minutes, like eight minute, maybe, but 20 minute test with that five minute clearing, it's, it's hard to get a big anaerobic, um, contribution. That's the whole reason. So when we, when we say 20 minute test, that the reason they have that five, there'll be like a five minute all out. You're like, why should I go all out for five minutes? That's a, Coggin and Hunter kind of describe that as the anaerobic uh, clearing event, which is burn off. Yeah, just kind of make sure you're not going to attribute all this anaerobic power. That's not going to really measure your uh, aerobic system during your test. So if you follow that protocol, I think you're you're pretty good. Awesome, uh, Kieran. He says when using the indoor trainer, I can't achieve my competition slash race heart rate of one seventy two to one seventy six. The max heart rate indoors seems to be at around 162 BPM. Is this normal? As I'm concerned, my training is not replicating my race efforts. Um, Kieran, so aside from all the things that can affect heart rate, um, let's just let's just remove those from from this uh, equation. My guess is it's a matter of motivation. Um, assuming you're not a little overreached and just a little tired and you can't elevate your heart rate, uh, the fact is when you're outdoors in a comp- in, comp- in a competitive environment, uh, it's a lot easier to drive that heart rate up and really push yourself. Indoors, that motivation isn't isn't quite there. It can be. Um, it's something you kind of learn over time. But uh, I would guess you're simply not working as hard as you're capable, and that's really boils down to motivation. Could be a matter of cooling, but. Uh, chances are you just can't quite push yourself as hard indoors as you can outdoors, especially when you're competing. Well, too, though, when you're the difference between a workout and a race, the workout, you're exercising at a a specific, uh, energy level and you have goals in a race, you're going as hard as humanly possible for yourself. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, that's that's actually, yeah. That's a super good point. So we got to talk about, um, compare apples to apples. So if you're doing all out race efforts indoors, then they should compare really well. But if you're doing, you know, some steady state, like sweet spot stuff, of course, the heart rate's not going to compare. But my, my guess is he's talking about doing all out efforts indoors versus all out outdoors. Yeah. Well, even with that, it's still, I, I know with our work, if, he, if he's doing our workouts, he's not going to have, he's not going to be pushed to an all out race effort. Um, that would peak your heart rate for like, cause like a race effort that, that something that would peak my heart rate and my heart rate, my highest heart rate I've ever seen on the bike is two Oh two, uh, indoors. I get it bound to like one ninety two or something during a really hard, long interval. But the reason that I can get to two Oh two is it'll be a crit and I will not work at all for 55 minutes. And then I will just blow through it for like three or four minutes, you know, at the very end and go as deep as possible. 
And that's where I get to that really high heart rate. But we wouldn't have a workout like that. It's just, just like, okay, chill. And now let's like, like try to test your three-minute power for um, test your three-minute power and try to get your heart rate as high as possible. You know what I mean? Like the yes, the, it's just that, not that. That's way. one thing that I want to clarify is we we most def- race effort. That's purely contextual, right? I mean, if you're a half Ironman athlete, then you know you're looking at threshold around there and and slightly below. That may be a race effort, right? We're talking about 100% all out everything you can do efforts. Um, when you're outside riding with others, you get pushed into scenarios where you're giving absolutely everything and you, and then you run completely out of gas. When you're inside, in most cases, your structured workouts aren't going to be pushing you to that point of failure. We're going to be flirting with that. And if depending on the workout and depending on the context and the training plan, you'll be flirting with that, but doing so to make sure that you can still recover to do it again for the next interval set or recover properly for the next day. Um, one thing too, to keep in mind, uh, Karen, and I'm, I, I know, or I'm sure a lot of people have recognized this when you are riding outside, a lot of the time you're doing an all out effort. There's a lot of body movement. You're having to stabilize yourself on your bike a little more. Um, you aren't locked into a trainer. You may be out of the saddle and sprinting and, and thrashing around the bike, looking like Tommy Vokler, like you're really trying hard. Um, but when you're inside, you might not be doing that. And I know, I notice whenever I'm in the middle of a recovery interval, it's just as I'm trying my best to be as efficient as possible when I'm pedaling in those intervals, suddenly during a recovery interval, I like to see how good I can shut down just completely relaxed face, completely relaxed arms, shoulders, neck, hands, everything else. And when I do that, I see my heart rate drop. So um, when you're outside, all that other movement that other muscle engagement that you have going on to balance yourself on the bike, maybe to sprint out of the saddle and that grimace you have on your face because you can't believe you're getting dropped. And then the mental energy you're expending just because you're frustrated about that. All those things can jack up your heart rate quite a lot. Um, that's part of the reason why we structure your workouts based off of one of the many reasons that we structure workouts based off of power because that's an objective metric that we can make sure that we can use to give you structured proper, or I should say properly structured training, you know? Yeah. That's a good point. Like, does this even matter? Like if yes, I'm, if I'm point. doing my, uh, my intervals at the, that's, that's why we're not heart rate road or, you know, you know what I mean? Like if you're yeah. doing all your intervals and you're hitting your power, who cares what your heart rate is? Yep. Yep. That's really what it comes down to. Yeah. Okay. Next Solid. question. <laughs> nice conclusion, Chad. That was solid. <laughs> I'm glad we covered that one, though, because I'm sure a lot of people have that question. So, um, David, and this question was submitted via Twitter. It's a two-part question. First, he says, I'm 46 on your mid-volume plans, but I'm stagnant in terms of FTP improvement. What are signals of, of need to adjust a training plan for age, and what should I change? Uh, so that's probably your key signal right there, David, is that your FTP is plateauing when improvement stalls, uh, something needs to change. And whether this is a matter of age or a matter of recovery, uh, who knows, but let's, let's approach it as though it is a matter of age. And as you know, and I'm sure most of us uh, have been faced with, we, we kind of, things decline as we age, you know, via two max starts to, starts to drop off a certain percentage every year. Muscle mass starts to kind of degrade our ability to recover increases or our need for recovery actually increases. So these are all things we can mitigate by training and training effectively. But the sad fact of the matter is, um, changes typically have to be made. And, and when it comes to masters level athletes, masters age athletes, um, that often comes in the form of more recovery. 
um, it might day on day off typically works for most athletes. Um, in the case of the mid volume plans, there is a two day block on the weekends. And if you're coming out of that and, and you recover on Monday and you're just not feeling it by Tuesday, yet you hit it again and again and again, that plateau and, and perhaps eventually a decline is going to happen. So you have to decide, you know, what, how are you going to change this? Are you going to drop down to a mid volume plan? Are you going to skip an occasional Sunday, make the Sundays a little bit easier? And then there's all the other factors. Maybe your sleep quality is not great. Maybe stress is high in your life right now. You know, other things outside of this uh, this narrow training scope. Uh, but basically, uh, your body doesn't recover like it's used to. So you have to figure out just how much recovery do you need to make your hard workouts effective? Because those are the workouts that are going to increase your FTP over time. Uh, what's interesting about this is he could actually need uh, more training stress, right? We don't know where Perhaps, he's at. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, if he could be like, you know, I've trained for 10 years and now I'm at 4.7 watts a kilo and I'm just not going up with mid-volume, he could need high volume to go up more. Or that's he could abs- say, yeah. Go ahead, no, no, that's absolutely true. You might be plateauing because there's not enough stress taking place. So you might have reached a point where your body is very much accustomed to what you're doling out on a weekly basis and you're just, you know, plowing through the workouts and uh, no no progress is being made because the stimulus isn't sufficient enough to, to spur further change. The other two things to look at is body composition. Is that changing? Because as we said many times, if you're losing weight, uh, you are getting faster. So if your FTP is stagnant, but you're losing weight at the same time, that's a win, right? And mm-hmm. you shouldn't feel bad if your FTP changes or does not change six weeks to six weeks and you've lost weight. Um, yeah, you're still, you're still improving in that respect. There's, yeah, there's nothing stagnant with your power there. Your power is, is, is fighting against the odds while you're losing weight there. So, and then the last thing is stress, like work stress and family life stress, that stuff too can, uh, hinder recovery. And thus you could get into that hole that Chad's talking about. There's actually a really good blog post that we just wrote (laughs) about super compensation. So if you go to our blog, blog blog.trainerroad.com. Uh, my sister just told me yesterday, she's like, I can never find the blog, blog.trainer.com. If you go there, uh, there's a, a new post about super compensation and how to use that to make sure you're training better. Yeah. Yeah. We break it down for you. Uh, he says more on the age question, although I'm training for cyclocross, is it possible? And he puts in, in parentheses because of age that I'm better off with a 20 minute test than the eight minute test. Uh, David, I don't. Uh, typically I don't think it's a matter of age when it comes to that. I think it's really a question of what yields a better uh, picture of your performance or your capabilities. So whether it's a 20 minute format or the eight minute format, you just have to decide, you know, what works better, the, the shorter, harder efforts at, at, you know, basically a greater percentage of your hour power versus a, a better paced, longer 20 minute effort that isn't quite as, uh, as difficult in terms of intensity, but obviously the duration is substantially longer. So whichever one works better for you, once you find that format though, stick with it. So your results are com- comparable across time. Yeah. There, there isn't necessarily a tie or is there a tie Chad? I, I see this commonly, I guess, understood or assumed is a better word by cyclists that, that if you're older, having higher intensity efforts, you just simply are not as good as that or as good at them as you were when you were younger. Nah. So therefore you lean towards, the- I, I disagree. I mean, there, there could be some, some research on this that I don't know about, but I haven't seen any evidence that indicates that the one test format is better based on age that you can't yield the same, uh, high or percentage of your VO two max power doing an eight minute test versus your, uh, slightly lower percentage of that power on a 20 minute test. I haven't seen I anything. It- I think in general, your VO2 max goes down as you age, right? But that's it still, does. it pushes everything down. 
but all you're trying to do is determine a, a fair representation of your functional threshold power and whether you test via the eight minute format or the 20 minute format. I haven't seen anything that uh, links declines in either of those based on age. We just busted a myth. Solid job. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> um, Sebastian, he says, Hey guys, I absolutely love your podcast. You guys are a great, re- a great source of inspiration and training knowledge. Thanks, Sebastian. We appreciate that. Um, it's a lot of fun for us. He says, my question is, I'm an age group triathlete. I've been training for three years now and I've had some decent results. I'm really trying to get my FTP up this year, but I can't seem to get any increases. I do a shorter, hard bike workout on the trainer and a long outdoor mountain bike ride every week. I started this season just under 200 watts and have only been able to get to 225 watts in two months of hard training. That's That sounds pretty good to that's me. Good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, that's, we'll talk about good that. Good job, Sebastian. Yeah. 25 watt increase in eight weeks. That means like, yeah. damn, I want that. So his question, how can I raise my FTP? Thanks. So first off, Sebastian, um, two things spring to mind. First off, an increase of 25 watts from a 200 watt threshold is about 12% increase. And a lot of people spend a lot longer than two months trying to achieve gains of that magnitude. So from the start, uh, unless you feel like your capacity is vastly surpassing that 225 watt ceiling at the moment, I think you're doing really well. Uh, and then beyond that, you say you do one hard workout and then one long workout. Uh, I not sure that's going to be enough stress to really elevate. That might be enough stress to elevate you more gradually than, than perhaps you can. Uh, it's certainly enough to probably maintain your, your fitness, but even our lowest volume plans have a couple days of intensity and then a long day because only working out or doing two rides a week out of seven days is probably not enough to keep that uh, performance on the, on the rise. In terms of triathlon too, as a triathlete myself going into mountain biking, it's, a way different type of stress on your body doing, uh, I don't know what distance you're racing, but the really your long rides on the trainer in the aero position will really help. Or if you can get outside and do rides that have no stop signs, no downhills, and you can get the same. What I've noticed, I just talked to Jonathan about it last weekend when we rode, uh, mountain biking, hard, 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 easy, 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 hard, 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 easy, easy, easy. And we have a, we, we're really lucky. We have a huge climb next to us in a mountain called Peavine. And I think we climbed for an hour and 20 minutes, Jonathan, something yeah. around then. Yep. And then, mm-hmm. but even in there, there are little flat sections and then we descended for 40 minutes. So I think the ride was like two hours and 10 minutes total about. And, uh, but in there, I only, although it was a two hour ride, I only really worked for an hour and 20 minutes. Right. And if I probably would have just done 90 minutes on the trainer, I would have got a better workout than that. The reason why I'm doing this is my mountain bike skills are constantly improving, although I did crash on Sunday. I don't think I told you that, Chad. <laughs> Nate's, <laughs> um, Nate's showing us his scraped elbow right now. Yeah, you can't see it's, that it's, in radio land. But yeah. I, wore, I wear pads, and you can see right where the pad ended, and there's a big scrape across my arm. <laughs> it's, it's, that pad saved me, though. But yeah. I need to increase my skills, so... I'm sacrificing some fitness to get some skills and how to descend and that kind of stuff. And that's what Jonathan's showing me. But in general, I wouldn't, mountain biking is really fun, but if you're a really diehard triathlete, I would spend that time on the trainer or on that, that flat, no stop lights, no stopping road. Uh, cause it's just, that's when you're in a race, there might be a couple turns, but it's usually, you know, closed course. You don't have to stop at stop signs and stop lights for three minutes and stuff and get recovery there. It's, it's all about specificity. So that'll help too. And, and again, what Chad said, do that do more workouts, man, not just two rides, three rides. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And Sebastian, I don't know if, um, 
so this is just me piecing things together and I could have it totally wrong, but it seems like the long outdoor mountain bike ride every week that maybe just uh, mountain biking is a lot of fun. And it may be because you'd rather enjoy time on the mountain bike than, than being on the other bike. Um, for me, there's no better way to ruin a mountain bike ride than to know that I have to go out and somehow fit an interval structure on a tight, crazy up and down trail. That's unpredictable. Um, just because I, that makes me look at the trail instead of having fun. That makes me look at the trail in in the context of I need to break this down, find where I need to work and then repeat that section or I need to. And if I don't find that, then that frustrates me, right? Because I can't actually accomplish the goals of my workout. So I make sure I get all my stuff done, all the intensity work done on the trainer inside. So then when I do get outside on the bike, I don't have that, that stress that, that honestly in my, for, for me personally, um, actually decreases the value of that ride for me. So that, that's one of the powerful things. I spend the time on the trainer to get that done. And then if I do have a fun ride on the weekend, I'm not going to go out searching for any type of specific interval structure. Um, I may have some type of normalized power goal by the end or something like that, or a TSS goal by the end. Um, something that's a little more, doesn't require quite as much structure to it, but all my structured stuff is going to be done inside. Cause that's where I'm going to get the most gains. Yeah. Your mountain bike rides are almost like TSS fillers, right? So you've totally. done your hard stuff. Yep. And then the, instead of doing like an hour easy on the trainer, you're like, I wouldn't just do that mountain biking. That sounds like a lot more fun. Yep. And there's always the caveat that when you're on a mountain bike, that you're always going to come across sections that are not going to be easy. So recovery yeah. days on a mountain bike are not a good idea because no matter what, you're going to have to go over your limit. Um, it gets steep and it's tough to help to keep traction and gets really hard, but it's just I think so much those, fun. It's a lot of fun. TSS filler workouts. It's a great way to work on your bike skills. Um, I'm going to touch on this really quick that we spoke about this in the last podcast, but this Carson city off-road race, uh, that we just had, there was that criterium that we did and it was in a, in a city at 12 turns per lap, which is crazy. And we did 18 laps. Um, and everyone had gigantically wide mountain bike bars with levers sticking off of them. And in a criterium, that's pretty much every road rider's worst nightmare uh, is just locking bars with everybody and bumping into them. And we had knobbies on instead of slicks. And you would think that it would have been really chaotic. There wasn't a single crash. It was the most controlled regarding bike handling. I saw guys touch wheels over lap wheels. I got a handlebar to my chest and it bumped my GoPro all over the place. Like I had, a, I have bruises on me from handlebars. Not a single person crashed, a person crashed and we never felt out of control. And it just shows that when you do put in the time to be a better bike handler, it pays off so huge. Roadies, listen up, ride mountain bikes. It can help you. So we were two wheel drifting through every turn and okay with it. You know, it's like, it's a lot harder to do on a road bike. Don't get me wrong, but, um, it just shows that that bike handling stuff. If you are just, just on the road and you feel sketchy, spend some time on a mountain bike. I'm sure that's one of the reasons why Chad is such a good bike handler. Um, you spend yeah, a lot of time on the mountain. I gotta bike. say mountain bikes are a bit more forgiving uh, in terms of that just lets you get away with quite a bit more. But the fact of the matter yeah. is I started as a mountain bike racer and I attribute most of my handling skills to, to that. I mean, I learned so much just being able to ride a bike slowly, the balance that's required. That all came from mountain biking and, and that carries to, to higher speeds, of course, but I, I couldn't agree more. I think there's a, a lot of technical, uh, benefit to be gained from riding a mountain bike. I'm reading a new, uh, book about mountain bike handling. It's, uh, by Brian Lopes. I say his name Lopes. Yep. Yeah. Brian I think Lopes. it's called mastering mountain biking skills. It's a good book. And, but in there they say, 
if you're a mountain biker and you really want to be get good at handling, ride BMX bikes because <laughs> then it's like super fast and twitchy. And if you can do that, then mountain biking will be easy. And then road will be just boring, right? <laughs> super easy. <laughs> yep. All right, uh, let's move on to Matt's question. He says, five stars, gentlemen. Love the podcast and good to hear that I'm not alone in geeking out on this stuff. Thanks for the stars, Matt, all five of them. We appreciate it. And Chad, it looks like this guy may have known you. He says that he raced on the same team, a different branch of that team back in the day. So on the the Hub Roasters team, cool stuff. All right, so he says, um, his first question, he says, would love to hear the follow-up on fasted training. At what point in a ride do you hit diminishing returns on the butter burning? And by butter burning, he's talking about fat burning, of course. Um, he's not talking about actually literally eating butter and then uh, on a ride. So uh, he says one and a half hours, two hours, or as long as you can manage it. So where do you see that point where it drops off? Um, so uh, first off, Matt, sorry I didn't get a chance to actually race with you, but I guess that's a product of being in two different cities. Um, and I didn't race a heck of a lot the last couple of years. But uh, th- this really boils down to two things, how metabolically efficient you are, and then, of course, how hard you're working. So uh, the idea here is to elevate your your efficiency to a point where you can metabolize fat at higher and higher workloads. So maybe right now you can go out and ride for an hour at 70%, and, and then you're gassed. You, you're out of, you, you've been burning sugar, and, and now you're out of sugar, and you, and you hit the wall. But over time, you become more efficient such that you can better metabolize your fat sores and you're not really utilizing your sugar and that efficiency climbs. So now you're riding at 80% and you can stretch it to a couple hours. Then you're at 85% and you can, and then you get to a point where you can do a four or five, eight hours. In some cases, some of these guys get ridiculous with it, burning nothing more than fat. You know, they drink water, maybe a little bit of electrolyte, but they process virtually no sugar along the way, you know, very small amounts. Um, so it's, th- there's really not a point of diminishing returns in general. It just matters how well adapted you are to, to metabolizing fat. And then of course, how hard you work, you work too hard, you start burning sugar, you're going to burn yourself out quicker, but you keep it at that lower fat burning rate and you can go for uh, surprisingly lengthy periods of time. Hmm. That's interesting stuff. I, I've always noticed that, that same thing, Chad, that at first I, and I don't have any data to back this up, but there is kind of a wall and I'm doing air quotes here, but like a wall that I feel where I feel suddenly like I am lacking on energy stores that always gets extended with yes. time as I implement this over time. Mm. Like, um, in fact, I remember last year, uh, so this year my training has been really hampered from an injury, but last year in the winter, I did a lot of really long rides. And at first I was only making it up to the top of Geiger grade before I needed to eat from our house and from our house, that's about an hour and a half. And then later on, I was making it long, a long way into the five-hour loop. We call it the Lamonda loop, and it's one that Greg Lamond used to use to train pretty regularly. It's a big day in the mountains, a lot of climbing, three mountain passes. Um, and I would make it all the way almost to the very end of the loop, and then I would feel like I would need to, to take in some food. So um, it does happen, although patience is certainly required. It's not like you can just will it into it. You have to spend time and and time your meals and what you're eating appropriately for this to happen. You know, this, this is another thing I've noticed with fasted training and I don't know if it's what the science behind it. And this is N equals one anecdotal. So probably just mute your, your phone right now. But what I noticed <laughs> is that some, on some workouts I'll get going and maybe a little bit into it. I will feel kind of like depleted, like, Oh man, I'll, like I have low blood sugar. Like I just don't feel like I have it. And I found that if I can last 20 minutes, that feeling goes away and then I feel fine. And I've actually timed it. It's like between 15 and 20 minutes. Exactly. It could be a hundred percent mental. And I'm like aware of that, but 
I, I've got, have you guys ever experienced that? Where are you, you, are you feel eating bad? something? Are you eating something nope. like 30 minutes prior? Nope. No? nope. Nope. Waking up. No, no. Just drinking water. I kind of feel just, bad and then it goes away. It might just be a question of getting your aerobic metabolism rolling. You know, you're, you're, you're dipping into the anaerobic stores and pushing a little too hard. And then the aerobic system starts to catch up and starts to un, mm-hmm. unburden the anaerobic yeah. side of things. Uh, to put it really simply, that'd be my guess. Yeah. So, that's, it's the nice thing about that is those workouts I'd used to be like, Oh, I just don't have it today. But now I just go through it and I do have it and it's, you know, I get more training stress. It's awesome. Yeah. So in, yeah. in theory and not even really in theory, actually in practice, you, you can ride, I mean that your, your fat stores are, uh, basically unending. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to be there period. doesn't matter to how, say, how long you go. I'm just saying if you, if you, <laughs> not, not you in particular, Nate, but people in general, even the leanest of athletes, we got a lot of onboard fat that we can, we can use for, uh, to, to aerobically power our work. And you can, uh, the idea, basically you lower the intensity to the point where you can just go and go and go, but nobody wants to go slow forever. I mean, in some cases it applies, but typically people just want to get faster. So over time, and this is very dietary, I mean, you have to, your diet has to be shaped around it. You're the timing of your dietary intake, um, it, that, that sort of thing. I mean, this is a bigger topic than just getting out and riding your bike and not eating anything. But the fact is you, you can do it for a very long time. And as you adapt, you can do it at a higher intensity for a very long time. I just did the math and I'm carrying about a hundred thousand calories of fat. <laughs> there you go. So <laughs> that's, that's if I'm estimating a 16% DEXA fat store. So that's like every bit of me, but that's, right. you know, I could do a hundred thousand calorie workouts in a row and not be out of it i mean you would you would die before that yeah so so if all you use the point though is is you're not running out of fat right if if all you use was fat is is virtually limitless yeah absolutely uh his next question he says you guys ever use the inside ride rollers i love them and have been killing myself with your rolling road race plan sometimes difficult to keep it upright after multiple all-out efforts but so much better than a fixed setup in my opinion thoughts yeah, we have used those. We've actually worked with Jason from Inside Ride Rollers. He came down to Interbike once with us and stayed in a, a house when we had like 11, 11 beds. It was kind of fun. He's a great yeah. guy, and, and they're cool. So people that don't know, it's basically erg mode on rollers. So you get the same great Inside Ride Rollers, but you can hook them up to Trainer Road, and uh, it'll it'll change the resistance as you ride. Um, so if you're a roller fan, that's like the pin. It's like the kicker of rollers, the, right? The best. Yep. Yeah, and, and for those that don't know what the inside ride rollers are, aside from the the erg mode part, essentially the rollers have their the whole thing is like on a boom rack. So it's almost it's 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 sitting on top of a rack, and the rollers that you're riding on, the whole thing can shift fore and aft, and then it's got like just in front and behind your wheels, it's got these other rollers so that if you push too far forward or you kind of, uh, you know, shift your weight backward. It's got these rollers that can catch your tires behind that as well. And then he's got rollerblade wheels that are perpendicular to the rollers so that if you go to the edge, you hit those and those can act like as a little barrier. So you just don't fall off the rollers. It's like, it is really cool. And I, for those that don't ride rollers, we've talked about this before. I really like riding them. If it's, I have no power goals for a workout, which is pretty rare. Let's be real. (laughs) In almost every situation, if I'm going to do a workout, I've got power goals that I need to hit. Um, but it's just hard to get the structure on a normal set of rollers, but on the inside ride rollers, that's the best bet you're going to have. You can get out of the saddle and it feels pretty darn close to real. It feels 
a lot less like riding rollers and more like riding on the road, which it's funny because that's what most people usually pitch rollers as like, well, it's just like you're riding on the road because you're not locked in and it's totally not. Riding rollers is totally unique from riding on the road. Um, you can prove that by just having anybody that's a very proficient bike rider that hasn't ridden on rollers, try to ride rollers. And it's, you'll have YouTube content for days, uh, just watching them try to not try to not fall down. So, um, the inside ride rollers, I love them. They're a lot of fun. Um, and then the erg mode on top of it's pretty sweet. So yeah, typically what we're concerned with, with rollers is that you can't really push yourself and you can't, uh, you know, basically push yourself without the fear of falling over, but these kind of remove that from the equation. So if you're doing your workouts, Matt, and, and, you know, you're not, even those last couple intervals, you're managing to get through them with your power on target, uh, and you know, obviously not falling over, then I, I think that's a, an, an awesome option to explore. Yep. And kudos to you because you're probably, uh, building up some good stabilizing muscles and good core strength when you're riding balance. on that too. Yep. yep. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, and his third question, he says, if cyclocross is my focus and I'm just finishing up a specialty block, would I likely benefit from going back to sweet spot base for a bit, then building back up specifically for cyclocross before the fall? Yeah, almost indefinitely, Matt. Otherwise, you're looking at sustaining a peak for a really long period of time, and that kind of flies in the face of what a peak is. So, uh, and this is uh, what I recommend in probably 99 cases out of 100 is to return to sweet spot base. I mean, you can always go back to a lighter form of training, a less structured form of training, but if you're trying to keep consistency, you still want to do a bit of hard work, but you kind of want to let yourself recuperate both uh, physiologically and psychologically, sweet spot base is my go-to plan for it. And then, uh, it's enough of a break from the severe intensity too, that you can, you know, basically rally and, and push yourself to a higher level of fitness than you'd be able to do if you just tried to sustain where you're at right now. So in general, that's our advice, right? So if you have like a springtime peak and then a fall peak, go back to sweet spot base and go through it. If you're going to, you have races closer or you want to maintain during a season, uh, that's a little bit shorter than, the, you know, I'm not talking about spring to fall. That's when we say we do, quote, rebuild, where you go back to a build plan and you do how many ever weeks in there, and then you go back to a specialty and peak. Is that right, Chad? Yeah, that, that about sums it up. Awesome. Boom. I understand <laughs> this stuff, guys. <laughs> Getting good at this. And, and hopefully that gives you some idea on uh, just outside of the context of our plans, too. Because I know a lot of you that, that listen to Aren't Trainer Road users, you're probably like, what the heck are they talking about? Sweet spot base and build. But um, yeah, hopefully that gives you a context, right? I mean, Chad, do you feel like you should or we could embellish a bit for those that don't know what the plans are? Yeah, we should talk. What's, what's sweet spot base, Let's do that. Chad, just yeah. in general? Yeah, so we, we take into account that people, especially people training indoors, probably don't have a lot of time to dedicate to training. So they can't build up the aerobic base uh, doing the long, slow route where you spend many hours at, at lower intensities on the bike. So we bump the intensity up a bit, make the workouts a little more targeted, a little more specific, and a little higher intensity with the intention of deriving the same uh, aerobic benefits, the same muscle endurance benefits, speed benefits, et cetera, in substantially less time. So you know, our goal is to basically put you on the bike anywhere from uh, five-ish to maybe, well, you know. You know three and a half. Yeah, it, at the low end of things, three and a half hours a week. And it's surprisingly effective. Yeah, and so in general, sweet spot base, it's a. It's not just us advocating this. Lots of people get great returns from sweet spots. A lot of people try like the traditional route, and they just don't have enough time, and they actually don't get as fit as somebody doing less work indoors. And a lot of people too have been doing years of just kind of riding, um, you know, outside, and they're like, "Oh, I'm building my base." 
And then they come in and they do one six week of sweet spots and they like the other guy, you raised your FTP by twelve percent and you're like that's that's why people I, I um I think a lot of people use Trainer Road is they're like, Oh my gosh, I've never worked so hard at intervals. Yeah, and that's and that's they, totally yeah, worth mentioning too, because even if you do have the time to accumulate that that massive aerobic base and you can ride twenty hours a week, you're still not gonna gain the same sort of fitness that you gain when you push yourself to these higher levels of your, you know, your your uh, functional threshold power in this case. And in general, sweet spot, that's the power level. So there's your FTP, that's your threshold. Um, and then below that, really the power zone that's like defined as tempo. And there's no, there's a, what Andrew Coggin came up is the area between threshold and um, tempo, tempo is what he calls sweet spot. Hunter and that's Allen. the bet. I thought Coggin developed no, that. No, I think sweet spot belongs to Hunter. Pretty sure. Oh. Yeah, okay. I, I, Coggin absolutely advocates it, but I think it was Hunter's idea. Okay. He said in that area, that's where you get the best bang for your buck, where you can you have intensity that you can recover from that also pushes your FTP up. And um, it just works so, so well. So that's, that's, a, that's yeah. That's it's a surprisingly spot. hard place to work. And I think a lot of people who, <laughs> who are introduced into this form of quote-unquote base training, you know, it's hard for them to wrap their minds around the fact that this is still base work. Because it has, it is at you know roughly ninety percent of your hour power. So you're doing you know short intervals. Obviously, you're not going to stay there for hours at a time like you would with long slow distance outdoors, or just at you know lower percentage of threshold. But it's it's challenging, and I think it's an eye opener for a lot of people when they realize that just working at well not just but working at ninety percent of their threshold, not pushing all the way up to that you know very difficult to sustain effort level, but not riding as easy as they typically do can have. Uh, really broad sweeping and, uh, beneficial, uh, uh, improvements. Yeah. And to give you an idea of where that sits in a numerical sense, it's, it's 84 to 95% of FTP is that, that's right. Right. Chad, I think so. Yeah. There, there's a lot Roughly. of different ranges for it. I just peg it right around 90%. Right. And, and it's, and it's a misnomer. It's, there's nothing sweet about pedaling in that spot. It's, it's pretty <laughs> uncomfortable. Pretty <laughs> uncomfortable. Um. Yeah. But the, the other cool thing about sweet spot too, is that, um, you gain a lot of the benefits that you would get with doing threshold work, but you don't suffer the, the increased rec or recovery time that's required by doing threshold work. Uh, you're, you're able to recover quicker, come back the next day and be more fresh. You don't do quite as much damage, but you still get a lot of the benefits that you get with threshold training too. So it's the, the cool part that we're kind of able to, we're still able to raise your FTP effectively or your ability to sustain that FTP and, um, do so while still getting you, giving you all the, the benefits of, of that you would get otherwise with the traditional style approach with uh, traditional base. The one thing about traditional base too, is, I mean, to put it in terms of the hours that you would need, I mean, what do you guys think? Like more than 10 hours at least, right? That you would have to dedicate to really get the benefits that you're chasing out of a traditional low and slow approach. Yeah, that gets kicked around a lot, but it, uh, most coaches I hear, and, and in my own opinion, I thread around 10, 12, 14 hours minimum. And that's a minimum, yeah, yeah. I, I don't have that much time to train. I, don't, I, mean, I know a lot of people do, but... Even yeah, if I, I did, know. I wouldn't want to spend it at, at those... Uh, consistently low intensities i would do my sweet spot workouts and then add in the mm -hmm. ts or the tss fillers the, of better fillers exactly. yeah on yeah. top of that yeah the one thing you'll get with that being outside if that's the case so long you'll have some awesome tan lines just sitting out there in the sun <laughs> the whole time so if you're into that sort of thing you got them with that so <laughs> 
Um, all right, let's move on to Simon's question. He says, how short is short power? I'm targeting a 13-kilometer time trial with three Cat 3 climbs, about eight minutes each. Is short sustained or general build the best? And Simon submitted this question on Twitter, too. He just used that a hashtag, AskTrainerRoad. Actually, in Simon, in your case, um, I'm going to go with sustained build just because of the format of the workouts. Um, short power, don't don't be confused. I mean, this is all very much aerobic work. So even short power is still relatively long efforts. But the short power build, and then I think the climbing road race, favors punchy power. So it actually does really short efforts, but they're typically clumped together so that they're they're highly aerobic. There's so many of them. The recoveries are so low that even though it's a obviously an anaerobic workload, you're doing a whole lot of aerobic work. Um, that That's not the best fit for what you're talking about. You're talking about eight-minute sustained efforts, and those don't really qualify. I don't, unless you plan to attack those, well, it's a time trial, so it's not even a, a head-to-head sort of mass start race. So I would lean toward the, the sustained power build, and even the climbing road race plan would be a better bet than rolling road race, even these even though these are kind of uh, rolling climbs. Yeah. Let's move on to Glenn's question. He says, I'm a longtime Trainer Robe member and a podcast listener. Five stars on the podcast. Love listening to it during training. Awesome. I never thought that people would listen to us while they train. Like for me, I couldn't handle having somebody's <laughs> Go voice harder. in my head. Don't give you up. Know? I have Chad's words on the I have Chad's words on the screen in front of me, and that's enough. Other than that, I just need music. So but I'm glad to know that it does make sense. It's about an hour long and most of the workouts are about an hour long. So it makes sense. And, and you can learn to get faster while you're getting faster. So, uh, he says, my question is related to cadence on the bike. Can it get too high? Historically, I was riding in the upper eighties to low nineties, but I've noticed lately that my average cadence for most rides is trending into the upper nineties and sometimes into the low one hundreds. A three-hour ride outdoors netted 98 RPM cadence last night, and a lunch ride today was 101 RPM. He says, I'm still producing uh, I'm still producing the power numbers relative to my FTP. Should I be trying to change gears a little more to move back into the lower 90s or just do what feels best? Glenn, this is really a matter of how it influences your performance. Um, it, I, there, there's plenty of science and research and, and tri coaches who advocate training at low cadences, and I'm talking like 60, 70 RPM, and then utilizing those low cadences come race day. Um, they're typically steered toward beginning and uh, moderate level riders, not not the higher end, because the fact of the matter is, as you improve and become more efficient, your, your cadence just gravitates upward. Um, whether or not 100 is a good fit for you it remains to be seen especially if you're a, i think you said you're a half distance so you know you got 56 mile bike legs did i get that right is he a half distance yeah he yeah. mentions that yeah, yeah so uh-huh. so over three hours you know how does that how does that affect your run i know personally uh when i do my bike workouts i'm i'm in you know the high 90s low 100s often enough but if i go out and try to do a three or four hour road race and and perpetuate that same quick spin i i cramp inevitably at some point um how that carries over to your run you know maybe it lends to a quicker cadence maybe it's a little too quick and the leg fatigue is a little high that's all for you to kind of determine but just because it's creeping up there if it feels natural i wouldn't necessarily fight it or worry about it but you do have to kind of or experience how it affects your, your run performance and your overall race performance. Yeah. In triathlon, there's always like whoever won the bike split and ran well off of it the previous year. It's like, that's the new cadence. Yeah. Chrissy Wellington. <laughs> yeah. She rides at 80. We all need to ride at 80. Lance Armstrong. He rides at a hundred. We all need to ride at a hundred RPM. 
right? Uh, yeah, I think a lot them. of studies show that self-selected cadence is the best. So just if you're, I wouldn't like be like, oh, my cadence is too high. Just whatever feels good to you. Cause you're probably naturally going to ride at a cadence that uh, is the easiest for you. Like the less metabolic stress. That's what, that's what I think. But uh, Chad has a good point is if you're running really poorly off of it or something big changes, you could experiment with uh, different cadences and see. Yeah, there should be indicators one way or another. I know I'm the exact same way as Chad. Um, if I carry a high cadence for a sustained amount of time, cramps are like a sign that, that mm-hmm. um, and I don't, I'm not exactly sure why, but that definitely happens. So it's just too much muscle stimulation. I mean, you're, you're turning the pedals over a hundred times every minute and you're doing that for hours on end. Uh, at some point mm-hmm. the, the, the wires get crossed and things kind of go uh, a little sideways. Oh yeah. The wires get crossed. <laughs> I've done Ironmans at a hundred and just fine. Lots well, of people when, do. Well, once that that applies to more Chad and I, right? That, yeah, that equals two. This is no. I'm exactly, just talking. This in is, terms of muscle cramping, overstimulation. I mean, that's that's it, right? It's it's more stimulation than your muscles are accustomed to handling. So if I'm doing hour rides, maybe ninety minute rides at hundred RPM, but then I'm going to try to extend that to a three hour, four hour, five hour ride, it's it's unfamiliar stress, and and things do go haywire. But like Jonathan, that's for you. There's a lot of people right. who can do 100 RPM for the entire Tour de France and be just fine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Technically, it, it all like like Chad saying the the principles behind cramping, it's overstimulation. But separating that from uh, that being a direct sign of a cadence being too high, that's all. That, that's all just for for us personally. Chad and I are in the camp of. Personally, if we pedal too quickly for too long, we get all crampy and fussy. So I, I'm going to argue one more point against both of <laughs> you guys is that uh, we don't really have any science to back up what causes muscle cramps, right? Like, I don't know if there's any definitive study that's like, yes, this is what causes muscle cramps. Nope. I agree with you guys that it's probably... A lot of people think it's like potassium. I didn't eat enough bananas, but I think it's <laughs> pickle juice. Doing pickle juice <laughs> is the answer. <laughs> uh, doing more than your body is accustomed to. That's what I think it is too. But yeah. in general, we can't just be like that is the reason because we right. don't we don't have the science. So it's it's like again, it's it's probably the it's probably the think. strongest going theory. It's the one that ha- has been shot down the least. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. that's a good way to put it. And and. I just want to back up the, or just make it clear. I don't advocate pickle juice. I know it works for some people. I cannot, I cannot drink Placebo. pickle juice while I ride. Well, yeah. Or you, uh, you drink pickle juice and you just can't like, this is disgusting and I can't ride hard anymore, but yeah. I don't cramp. So <laughs> exactly. I know a guy like that chewing bubble a, gum. I bet if you yeah. chew bubble gum while you rode, you wouldn't like work as hard and no more cramps. Yeah, and you get your mind off of it because you can't believe what you just put in your mouth, how disgusting it is. So, and and suddenly you don't notice the cramps. I don't know, but I know one guy, and it's sustainable, so it's smart. But he carries around mustard packets in his jersey, and he oh just God. he just he takes down a whole mustard packet on a long ride. And the reason it's sustainable is he can go to any gas station that sells hot dogs or any fast food restaurant and pick up <laughs> mustard packets. <laughs> oh. So he can, he can in it's his like mind, vinegar. keep the cramps at bay. But yeah, oh, disgusting. And his breath is disgusting, by the way. So yeah, he's just got pickles and mustard and it's terrible. Oh. So anyways, um, let's move on from that disgusting stuff. So uh, the next question is from uh, Hi, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correct. I'm going to um, say he. He, yeah. I worked with a guy spelled that way, and he, his name was he. He, cool. H- I H-Y, hope that's yeah. it. 
Thanks, Nate. Thanks. Um, this question was submitted via Twitter with the Ask Trainer Road hashtag. He says, Subject, subjective effort on dirt ride feels underrepresented by TSS and IF. Is there a way to objectify this effect? Uh, Jonathan, you want to take that one? Nate? Yeah, go, yeah, Nate, you kick us off with it. Yeah. So what I, I think he's saying is, um, and the way his name's spelt, I think English might be his second language, but I think he's saying is if I ride on the dirt, like mountain bike or stuff, it's a lot more taxing than mm-hmm. what my power meter says TSS intensity is. Is there a way to objectively measure this effect? And I, th- my personal thought on this is your cycling training stress is going to be the same, but I agree with you. Recovery could be more because you're using your whole body. You're jumping up and down, you're using more muscles and that will make you a faster like dirt or mountain bike rider in the future. But in terms of, str- I don't think it then adds to your TSS as you're going to then put out more power. I think just it, it, it yeah, unfortunately, I think that mountain biking would increase the amount of recovery time that you're having, especially if you do like you crash like me. I'm showing them my elbow. <laughs> well, yeah, TSS intensity factor. They don't really reward exactly how hard the body's working. You know, they're all based on power. You know, you might be putting that power out exceptionally smoothly. You might be putting that power out in a, in a really inefficient manner and actually accumulating more stress. So in this case, it's like uh, ride a 30 minute climb seated ride a 30 minute climb standing there, there's more more muscular stress and it's harder and you know the power is the same but the toll it's taking on your body is is vastly different and the same kind of goes for mountain biking especially the more technical in nature it becomes mm. yeah there's one thing too about mountain biking that i think a lot of people don't realize and it's maintaining traction um is it requires a huge amount of muscle engagement and balance um that goes through everything from your hands all the way up to your head and down to your feet you're using your muscles and you're, you're usually also turning a specific cadence that allows you to maintain that traction, whatever that may be. And you're incurring a lot of stress on the muscles. So I'm in the same boat as you, he, um, I feel the same thing. The one thing that, uh, that I can say is that using TSS and IF is better than using any other alternative that we have right now. Um, so it's, it's close to what you can get, but don't feel alone in the fact that it's tougher that that's, that's pretty normal. So on a, a tangent to this, so again, I just had my maybe a mid little mid level crash. I was thinking, guys, and I want to know what you think of this. Is I was trying to say, okay, me recovering from this crash because I'm all bruised and stuff. Am I burning more calories? And I would think that my because I know I get a lot more tired right after you crash, like the recovery, and you're like way more tired. Mm-hmm. My body repairing itself has to burn some amount of calories. I have no clue how much, but. I've got rash on my shoulder, hip, ankle, and arm, and bruises in all places. You know what I mean? Like I, this is something I was thinking about. I don't know. Is I it- can only speculate, but uh, my guess would be that your body is in a state of repair, which means you're going to be able to do less work on the bike. So I don't know that you're burning more calories so much as you're capable of less work. I, I mean, I mean, just like sitting here, not not riding my bike, mm. I'm burning more calories just because my my body has to build, grow new skin. You know what I mean, and, and repair what's going on. Or is, it, or is it perhaps just dedicating the energy consumption to a specific task other than others, right? Like yeah. that, that's, that's maybe that, that could be, and once again, we're all speculating here. We, we yeah, don't no know, clue. but you just want to hear that you're losing weight because you're injured. <laughs> <laughs> I said I should just like jump off the first floor once a week for an extra 500 calories. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, I, I've, no I've thought about that quite a lot. I mean, not not me losing weight, being injured, but I've thought of what 
my body is doing. And I do notice that if I'm training, I mean, I think we've all noticed this, we train really hard. Our immune system plays a role in, in, in recovery in our body. And, and if we are training extremely hard, that immune system, uh, to put it in layman's terms is distracted more or less, or has another focus of repairing those muscles. And it doesn't get to devote its full attention or resources perhaps to warding off illness or anything else like that. So, um, it can only do so much. So, so eat another cheeseburger, Nate, you can do it. There you go. Okay. That's what you wanted, right? <laughs> I'll be right back guys. <laughs> Uh, Greg, he says, bike saddle question. The saddle that came with my giant propel has been really comfortable outdoors. I'm a couple of weeks into the low volume half Ironman plan and I'm finding my seat really uncomfortable indoors. Do I just need to get used to sitting without moving for long periods of time? Or do you have some saddle recommendations? I know a saddle is a highly personal thing, but I thought you might have some suggestions. I'm wearing good cycling bib shorts and have had a professional bike fit. And before we jump into this one, if your bike is a new bike, um, Greg, that giant propel, then the saddle that's on it, I'm, I'm a big fan of that saddle actually. Um, Chad, I don't know if there's a name to it. The one that you guys have on your, on, on the giants, the new one, but they redesigned their saddle this year and it's, uh, more of a flat saddle. It still has a channel in the center. Um, and it looks a lot like a Bontrager saddle, um, similar to like a, a specialized Tope too, uh, if you, if you know that one, but essentially it's more of a flat saddle with a channel in the center. Um, yeah. So that gives you an idea. Yeah. I would say, uh, so you're a couple weeks in and it is going to be a more uncomfortable, especially on the TT position, uh, indoors. And that's because your bike's not moving and you're not getting out of the saddle as much. And if you're only a couple weeks in, I wouldn't look for new saddles quite yet. I would give it a good like four to six weeks and I would just get out of the saddle more often and kind of move around like you would outside. Then after that, we've talked about this before, but instead of buying saddles to try out, demo saddles as much as you can. Um, yeah. And this could be still the saddle for you forever. You just you just need to toughen up a little bit inside and that that will come. But it, it's the question is how far will that come? Will that be enough so that you're like, oh, this is great. So do you guys have anything else to say that rather than if just, he doesn't get it, just demo rather than buy? Yeah, I'm actually not very sympathetic to this whole issue in general. I, I think most people position themselves poorly on their saddles, <clears throat> and that's the large part of why they're uncomfortable on their saddles. I've, I've ridden, I can't tell you how many different saddles over the years. What comes with my bike is typically the saddle I ride for the season or the next season. Um, I've experimented with TT bikes. I think it's a little more, uh, it is an actual slightly more sensitive issue in the case of being in a time trial position and so forward on the saddle with your, with a lot of weight toward the, toward the nose of the saddle. I think then it starts to become a concern, but I think with most road saddles, if people learn how to properly set their pelvis, which is why we push the whole sit bones thing so much in the workout text, that a lot of this doesn't come into play. Saddle sores, numbness, all, all these issues that people try to blame on their saddle and they try to find that perfect saddle, I think can be corrected by proper placement on any saddle. Yeah. And one thing to mention, uh, the giant propels a road bike and you're mentioning that you're in the low volume half Ironman plan. So I don't know if you have aero bars on there and you're getting far forward, but like Chad said, they probably have a longer nose on it, like a normal road saddle. And it, a lot of people don't use those for obvious reasons. And they go towards something that's either open in the front or something with a shorter nose. Um, so they won't have so much pressure, um, in that, in that region. So, um, if you are getting into that position, I mean, it could very well just be, you have a longer nose saddle and, and maybe that's not ideal for, for your position on the bike. Um, you mentioned that you've had a professional bike fit. So 
if that's the case, and I don't know if you're training on the propel than racing on something that's like a TT bike or a, a tri bike, but, um, that's something to consider. Yeah. Greg, my, uh, my opinion of it'll get better too, especially if you're new now that I'm reading just a little more. So if you're on a road bike, it's an aero road bike and you're on the low volume, you, you might be, this might be newer to you for training and I would just give it some time. Mm-hmm. I think it will get better. And like Chad said, and- adjust yourself. Yeah, I can't I can't hit that home enough uh with with anchoring your sit bones. It it helps so much. And also, let's say you do have a terrible saddle. I mean, in whatever you deem that to be, uh you can get away with a lot as long as you make sure that you're anchoring your sit bones in the right spot. Uh it can be it can be really beneficial. So, and we say anchor our sit bones, Chad. We're talking about rolling the pelvis in most cases rolling the pelvis slightly backwards so that your pressure is more on the sit bones rather than on the, on the perennial region. Right. Yeah, exactly. So you know, saddles are wide in the back for a reason. Cause we, you know, we have bones or, or ischial tuberosities, but you know, very evident sit bones when you sit on a chair, they may, they make that depression. And if you sit properly, you feel most of your weight on those bones. And, and that's, that's where you should bear most of your weight when you're on a bike, even when you're in a, a low arrow position, even when you're stretched out on time trial bars, most of the weight in your, uh, in your pelvic region should be placed on those bones. Awesome. And then we'll wrap it up here with one more question. Uh, it's from Dustin. He says, first, I want to thank you all for your hard work on trainer road. I got signed up on trainer road this winter and the results are starting to show from the sweet spot base workouts. Last week, I had my first tangible breakthrough. While I rode laps on a trail with a friend, I was able for the first time in over a decade to recover while continuing to pedal up the climb. Great success. Uh, Nice job. So he says, I don't road bike here in Utah. The death by minivan quotient is far too high. (laughs) So my only option, and I guess we're laughing at that, but... Don't laugh by that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it's true. Yeah, there are a lot of minivans The phenomenon, not so much. Yeah. So my only option when using trainer road is to put my mountain bike on the kicker. It's a can field, all mountain, uh, downhill bike with very slack angles, eight buttery inches of travel no, and no suspension lockouts, not ideal for training. Uh, I do my best to keep my body calm and pedal strokes smooth and even, but there's still a noticeable amount of bobbing. I can tell I'm putting out more effort than the kicker is registering. I'm also bent over pretty hard at the waist due to the slack seat tube angle, but it's my only bike. So I've been making do. Uh, so question one, how will this suboptimal training posture affect my workouts and will this posture pose an increased risk of musculoskeletal injury? Yeah, potentially it can have a great effect Dustin. I mean, cycling is hard enough, but when we impose different demands or, you know, we put ourselves in a position where it's just hard to create power and anyone who's tried to adapt to an extreme time trial or aerodynamic position suddenly can, can vouch for this. Um, your power goes, it tanks. Um, and then, then there's a question of, you know, what, what's that doing to the rest of your body? What's it doing to your hamstrings, your low back? Uh, there is absolutely a concern for musculoskeletal injury. So both these things should absolutely be addressed. Um, it's going to be potentially performance limiting and potentially body damaging. So for sure, something you want to concern yourself with and address. But if this is the way he climbs and rides outside, could he, you know, his body just adapt to it? And this is the way, you know what I mean? he's like training the way that he's going to ride. Yeah. That's the other side of it. I mean, can you adapt to this effectively without injuring yourself and without sacrificing your power? I mean, that's, that's basically the, the two sides of that coin. We're trying to figure out, you know, where, where that, uh, that balance exists. Yeah. I think in this he'll case, just, just know this FTP is going to be higher than what it's registering because his suspension is going right. to be soaking up stuff. Yep. And also 
these bikes tend to have, you mentioned that seat tube angle. They tend to push you so far behind the bottom bracket because that seat tube angle is so slack that, um, it's going to require a lot of flexibility, um, across the posterior chain too. Um, just because you're going to be sitting in that position, pretty flexed out mentioned, you've got a lot of bend at the waist. Um, you're going to be stretching that out quite a lot. So, um, yeah, as long as you are, are, are know that your FTP may not be as high. And as long as you are doing your best to, to prevent any type of stress that may be coming on, that could be damaging, I guess it's the best you can do. And in this case too, I mean, he mentions he has a kicker. I'd recommend trying to find an old road bike or some type of a commuter bike, and you can rig one up to a kicker pretty darn easily. Um, as long as it doesn't have like a, a bolted axle on the back or anything like that, but it, it has a quick release, you should be fine. Um, I and mean, we've even gotten away with using on the kickers at the office, like seven speed bikes on with a seven speed chain on a 10 speed cassette. Um, it's not pretty, but generally one of those 10 gears will work well and you can kind of stick within that gear. So, um, that could be an option too. Uh, question two, I do much of my training around 90 to 95 RPM on the kicker. It feels natural, but when I'm doing steep granny gear climbs out on the trail, my usual sustainable cadence maxes out around 60 RPM. That was you this weekend, right? Nate on that <laughs> short, steep little section. <laughs> yeah, it sucked. <laughs> yeah. That that's the nature of mountain biking. Sometimes you just can't, um, you know, it's steep enough. And if you tried to pick up your cadence anymore, you lose traction and then you'd fall over. So uh, the strain on my legs is noticeably different when I'm on the trainer and it feels like I'm burning out very quickly, but I can't seem to maintain a faster cadence for more than short bursts to get up and over obstacles. Should I perhaps slow my training cadence down to develop better endurance at my trail RPM or just quit being a sissy and force myself to spend faster on the trail? <laughs> It doesn't, it's not really a matter of being a sissy. It's a matter of training for what you're going to face outdoors. And this is where the, the whole specificity of training thing really comes into it. Um, if you recognize this is something that's hindering your performance and, and making things difficult for you, then it has to be addressed in training. Um, it, slow cadence work isn't the easiest thing to address. Um, and with the bursts, uh, it, it could be a bit challenging indoors, but you can do it. So you, you just kind of, over time, and this is why when you move from base to build to the specialty plans, we kind of handle these things for you based on, you know, which, uh, which cycling realm you're, you're taking play, taking part in. Um, but the fact is this has to be practiced at some point. Um, ideally we handle that for you in the plans, but if we're not, then it's kind of up to you to insert some, some low cadence training or some surgy sort of efforts. Yeah. Some of those workouts, I know the intervals will say go lower than normal. And one of those, you could drop down to 70 RPM, 65 RPM because you're on a kicker. Yeah. yeah. And just experience that for a whole interval. The other thing is, um, you could check your gearing, right? Like you could mm. get smaller chain rings up front and bigger in the back and that could, you just buy your way out of it. That's what. Yeah. 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 Right. I, yeah. That, and that's one thing I assume if it's an all mountain downhill bike that probably pretty low gearing because they generally, um, so I'm not insulting all mountain or downhill guys, but in most cases they walk their bikes up steep climbs, right? It's like, if you watch any video on pink bike, that's like how every video starts. It's a bro unloads his bike and then walks up and it's like slow motion as he walks his bike up the trail. <laughs> That's like a thing. So I, it, but they, they very much are like their gear, their bikes are set up so that they can get up a short climb. They usually have a one by 11 set up and, but like Nate said, if you can go as small as you can on that front chain ring, it'll help quite a yeah, lot. It's been huge. So we, uh, I got a SRM for my fat bike and oh, what size was that front chain ring? I forget. I, I think a 32 or a 30. I think a 32. 
but I think I had a 30 before, but I w- it was a huge difference from my stock Massive. chain ring, just the two teeth and yep. uh, things that I could spin up before, uh, you know, it, it was, I was down to 70 RPM and it was just extremely difficult. So I'm actually, I, what I really want to get is the new Eagle, which is the 12 speed and yes. it goes, it's SRAM's uh, 12 speed and it's like a 500% change. <laughs> so you can yeah. just do whatever you want. I thought I thought Todd Wells cassette was gonna when he leaned into the turns was gonna be hitting the pavement. It was so big. Did this he have weekend. eagle? Yeah, he did. Yeah, it was huge in the yeah, crit. See? It was just like massive looking, and it's really cool. I like the idea. Like honestly, I don't understand people that object to having a wider gear range, especially with a one by eleven, because it's so simple, right? Like you don't have to deal with front shifting, and you get even more range. It, it makes sense yeah. to me. So. If Todd Wells uses it, you could use it. Exactly. Like, there's no yeah. shame in having a bunch of gears. You just have more, like, uh, more arrows in the quiver for like different types of terrain. Totally right. And you never know when you're gonna cramp, when you're gonna have that that moment where you just completely lose it, and you need that extra gear. Maybe, uh, maybe you tell yourself you don't need gears that low, but in the moment when you do need them, it's sure nice to have them. One thing. The, the, yeah. Go ahead. Nate. Go ahead. You could you could also just get a bigger if you're not riding really steep stuff in your area. You can get a bigger chambering up front. And you can still have the same back end gearing, but then um, for low fast stuff, uh, low gearing, you can go faster then. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. And it's easy to change a front chain ring. That's another benefit of the one by stuff. It's like four bolts and you just pop it off, pop it on. It's really nice. Um, uh, one thing too, um, for those that are looking at their gearing and seeing if that is like in this case, limiting him at, at, on climbs, you can go to Sheldon Brown's gear calculator, like Google that. Um, and it's, uh, you can go on there, plug in the gearing that you have, and then you can say, it'll show you like at X cadence for the, you know, you'll be going this speed and that's a really good indicator. And if you mix Strava and that, or anything else that you use to, re- to record your rides, you can see what gearing you would need to optimize your cadence for a specific climb. So that can help, but, uh, Dustin, hopefully that gives you all the info you need. Thanks for joining us this week, everybody. And keep sending in those questions. That's just trainerroadcom slash podcast. You can submit your questions there or use the ask trainer road hashtag on Twitter and Instagram, or find us on Snapchat. It's just trainer road and send us your questions there. We'll pull through as many as we can and answer them on the next episode of the podcast. And remember you can find and share this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see y'all next time. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye.